first panel is comprised of papers dealing with the various source materials available during different periods in the former Soviet states. The first paper is by Claire Griffin, a research student at UCL, CIS, whose paper is entitled Using Manuscripts to Research Russian History, the Case of 17th Century Medical Texts. Obviously it's kind of a bit hard to talk about one's own PhD and try and make things which sometimes aren't even comprehensible to yourself, comprehensible to other people. Um, but what I'm going to try to do is to speak about sort of how I came to the project and how being in the archives changes that and makes difficulties and helps you work things out, but also um, to talk about handwriting, um, which is a problem that some of us have to deal with. Um, yeah. So, first of all, excellent. Right, what I write about is 17th century medicine. So, really, I started off with a set of questions rather than kind of a fixed idea. <coughs> what is 17th century medicine? Specifically, what is 17th century Russian medicine? Is it like the West? Is it totally different from the West? The answer is kind of, well, a bit of both. Who practiced it? Which, if anyone's interested, is actually basically Germans and English people. Um, and what sort of substances did they use, which is important for um, a variety of reasons. Specifically, um, there were some autopsies done on some of the Russian czars by the Soviet government in the 60s, and they found lots of things like arsenic and mercury. <coughs> so substances is very important. Um, and approval, because this is really about um, Western ideas coming into Russia and about messing with the czar. Um, as a person and as sort of a, a, a body, which a lot of people were a bit worried about. Um, so there's lots of different ideas which can come up with courtly medicine um, and with Russian medicine. Um, so what I started off with really was a quite broad idea about the cultural history of medicine in Muscovy, by which I meant exploring lots of different types of sources and how they agree or disagree about types of medicine that are acceptable. So I actually started off with a lot of things like um, how bodies and healing are represented in uh, church documents, in secular literature, as well as in courtly documents. Um, the courtly documents, and Abdekarsky Prikaz, Prikaz in this sense is like a courtly department. There were loads of these for all kinds of things. Um, Abtekarsky prikaz, I mean, Abtekar kind of should be familiar, but basically this was anything to do with medicine. Um, the actual origin of the department is a bit unclear, as with most things in Muscovy, um, but we have records from sort of the 1640s onwards, which cover things like patients and recipes and prescriptions and medicaments which they bring in from abroad or things they find in the forest, um, including a surprising amount of juniper berries. There are so many documents on juniper berries. Um, and doctors' opinions on various different things. So those are the really the central court documents, which ended up, as you'll see, being like really the main part of what I looked at. And the way I started was with these three things. Um, the archive guides, which John mentioned already, uh, I may well have misspelt this, Putovedytili. The archive guides are really, really essential for knowing what kinds of groups of documents are in each archive. They're not hugely detailed, depending on the archive and on various factors, but, for example, for um, 
the main Prepetran archive, it lists all of the all of the separate fonts, which will usually be Aptekovsky Prikaz, the Kazansky Prikaz, the other government departments. So they're really good for finding that yes, these documents exist. Um, published documents are also something which unless you're very unlucky, you'll be using at least partly, um, which can be really helpful because obviously someone's read them for you already and put them in a readable form. Um, but if, if you're using sort of earlier sources like I am, 19th century collections can be a bit crazy in the way they've been compiled. Sometimes there aren't indexes, often there aren't even chapter listings. Sometimes they don't tell you which fond or archive they've got them from. Um, and obviously, okay, it's giving you some published documents, but it doesn't tell you what other documents exist that they haven't published. So they can be quite helpful, but I actually found that they are quite limiting as well. Um, and for the earlier period, what I found an awful lot is that certain collections simply were not bought by British libraries. I mean, these are literally, my main <coughs> collection is from... Um, well, there's a book from the 1840s, and then there's some slightly later stuff. But some of this really early published document collections, you actually have to get to Moscow even to look at the published stuff. So this can be a bit problematic. Footnotes are also really great as well. Um, I find footnotes to things in all kinds of things. You, it's always worth like just trawling general subjects, um, general articles about subjects which are kind of related, um, because they may have just a little footnote in there which will send you off somewhere else, which I'm sure we're all used to from other things. So the general conclusion was I needed to go to Moscow. <laughs> Hooray. I like that photo. Um, okay. So the archives. Um, as John mentioned, um, we were lucky enough to go on an initial archive trip, which I think was about a week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're able to just sort of go into places and kind of get the feel of places, because some of them quite difficult even just to get in the door, let alone find the room you're supposed to be in, find who you're supposed to be speaking to. It can all be um, quite crazy. One of the things which is really great to do if you can go on a short initial trip is the opposite, um, which are basically, I mean, saying that they're much more detailed than the Puto Vegetali is kind of a massive understatement. What an opus will give you is a list of every single document in that font. Um, so you can really see in much more detail what's going on. So you can actually, you can see, okay, well, I know that in this one from the Puto Detail, there are things about, you know, treatments and whatever, but how many compared to this fond? Um, but on the other hand, what I found a big problem was the topic of the document does not tell you how the person is writing about it. A constant problem of what I look at is, okay, I know from the office it's a document on intestinal, wor intestinal worms. Well, what does it say about intestinal worms? Does it tell us who's writing about it? Well, in that case, actually, it does. Uh, who they're treating? Does it give a list of treatments? Does it cite other works? There's so many questions that can only be answered once you actually have the document in your hands. Um, and so actually another thing that I found very good, if you possibly can for the initial archive trip, is looking at documents first hand. Especially if, like I do, you have to deal with handwritten documents. 
simple experience of calling up different kinds of documents. I mean, I, ended, I started off with calling up things on delivery of firewood and then very quickly thought, this is a waste of time. We'll stop with the firewood documents and just see what kind of things are these. I mean, kind of it now seems to be a stupid thing to ask yourself, but like, what is in a document about the delivery of firewood? Well, the answer is actually, you know, pretty obvious. It's about firewood. But other documents, it cannot necessarily be obvious what is in there. So it's always worth searching a bit and playing around. What are the most interesting documents from the point of view of your study? What can you get out of them? Um, so then there's the main archive trip. And so what I really decided at this point is, yeah, OK, the church is very interesting and the secular literary tale is very interesting. But in terms of primary, primary documents, what I really need to do on the archive trip is look at the Apothecary Chancery documents, also something called leech books. Um, leech books, Lichevniki in Russian, basically they are early medical texts. Leech, because I always get asked this, it's not really to do with actual leeches, it's an old English word for healing. It may even be that leeches get called that because of the verb leech, so we'll get that out of the way. Um, okay. So then those were my two focuses. So the first place I went is this Regada. This is in the same complex. This is the Roskos Archiv Drevnik Aktov. Um, how am I going for time? You're fine. You've got 15 minutes. Super. Thank you. Basically. Um, this is in the same complex as Garf. You go through the same door. This is actually a photo from the outside. Um, and I'd like <laughs> actual archive cat. He lives in the archives. Um, so at various points in the afternoon, you will hear him mewing as he wanders along the corridors because he can go pretty much where he likes. Um, yes. So that's a, there's actually a whole like semi-feral cat population of Regada. So. <laughs> Um, if you don't like cats, don't go there. <laughs> so the chancery sources. So what I really didn't regard it was an incredibly focused period of, of research because it's just um, it's one fond divided apparently randomly into three opposite. And so I literally went through every single entry. This is about about 1,600 documents, which doesn't sound like that many until you have to actually read every single entry. So like I said, I did a lot of trial and error and pulling up various things and then realizing that actually um, certain things that I thought would be very interesting, like uh, patient treatments, are actually often very dull. It says this patient suffers from X, I treated them. This is, this is even the case, and there's a document where that someone is described as suffering from masturbation. It goes into no details about why masturbation is an illness, why they were treating it, how they were treating it. They just said, yes, he suffers from masturbation. We'll try and sort that out. <laughs> so documents which from the office can look great actually are almost useless, because what does this tell us? I mean, they thought masturbation was an illness, but a, a Beyond that, you almost can't say anything. So initial impressions of what might really be quite good sometimes end up completely changing once you get into the documents themselves. So playing around is quite good once you can get in and order things. And once I really felt it was um, helpful to play around a lot, and then once I'd settled in and then say, OK, well, actually, these kind of documents are the ones which are really giving interesting information. Um, the ones that I've ended up 
focusing on almost entirely are these doctors' opinions, um, referred to as skazki, which has nothing to do with folk tales. That's just the 17th century term, um, which really give very detailed information about diseases and medicaments and this kind of thing. So that was how it happened in Brigada. I kind of had the opposite experience with leech books. By the 17th century, there were actually not as many as the West, but there were lots of different types and lots and lots of leech books, which are collections of recipes, descriptions of plants, details of treatments. Sometimes they take um, sort of quotes from various medical authorities, and they they end up all over the place. One of the most important, one of probably the earliest full text um, is actually now in Harkov. So they end up all over the place. It's not like the apothecary chancery where you can go to one building and that's it. For leech books, I ended up all over the place. One of them was the Leninka. Um, those of you who have been to the Leninka will notice that that is not, in fact, the Leninka building. <laughs> the Leninka has more than one building. The big grey Soviet thing is actually just up the road from this. Um, but although the street address is the same, I'm sure this says in your little pack, um, this is Pashkov Dom, and this is where a, a number of the special fonds are kept. So you may have to go in here. And as you can see, um, it's very recently been done up, and it's very, very nice. Um, like Literally, I think it was closed when we went for the initial archive trip, and then it was open by October again, and it's actually very nice to work in. Um, so they have a lot of different leech books. Also, the Historical Museum, although a museum has... Um, a library and also a whole manuscript section which was very very good they have an awful lot of information there and even an electronic catalogue which really <laughs> really is unusual um, and those guys are great you actually get if you get to work in here you get to go through the staff entrance and wander through various you know secret passages um, and also in St Petersburg I went to the Publichka and the uh, Biblioteca Academy Nauk. So really, um, I had two very conflicting experiences in terms of finding things in the archives. <laughs> One of which was these apothecary uh, chance resources, which are all just a case of going through and going through and going through one fond. And on the other hand, the leech books, which are just spread everywhere. And it was a case of instead going through um, the Puta Viditali and going through catalogues, where, whether it is the Kartateka, the card catalogues, as in uh, the Leninka is mainly card catalogues for that section, or the electronic catalogues, and searching and searching and searching for various different things. But I did um, do use the same trial and error approach, because again, with the leech books, you know, it's a leech book. You can't really tell anything about it until you've opened it. What's in it? Who wrote it? How long is it? Well, you can tell that before you've opened it, presumably. Um, and there's so much information that you just have to... I would order up the maximum amount every time I went into those archives and just get a pile of leech books and open all of them and flick through them um, carefully. <laughs> and, um, and just to see what was going on. So. I'm going to take a brief detour here and talk about how to use the handwritten sources themselves. This can be a bit of a problem. So you might be lucky, and I mean, I don't know how many of you can read that, but I mean, we can see this is quite regular. This is, uh, I believe, Paul's stuff, which is kind of the 
think this is a 16th century document, which is kind of regular and it looks more or less like we expect Russian should, should look like from, you know, modern Russian and it's all kind of okay and there are nice pictures and everything. But then you might see something like this. Um, one of the problems in Regada is that they have a rat problem, which is why they have cats. So I've, I know a friend who works in the 18th century who said that some of his documents had been eaten by rats and then urinated on by cats, which really makes the whole experience pretty special. Um, um, this is actually a um, Latin document. Um, my documents for the Apothecary Chancery, often they're originally written, written in Latin and then translated. So. Um, I suspect not a lot of you will come across this, but sometimes I had one of those. And then this is 17th century chancery hand Russian. Um, see, to me now, this looks fine. But I was speaking to John earlier, and he said that it was horrible. Um, so, but this is the kind of thing you come up with, come up against. And at first glance, my point here is not to sort of torture you specifically. But that at first glance, when you see these kind of documents, they can look really, really hard. But it is possible to read them. So one of the things, I mean, this is slightly scary as well, is that you can get these. This is a sort of a, a compilation of all the different ways you can write these letters. And as you can see, some of them look nothing <laughs> like the current letters. Um, this one is even worse. These are combinations of letters. And again, you can see some of them really look like nothing on earth um, but by looking at these kind of lists you can get used to how things look so strategies for dealing with these prepare if you think there is a good chance that you're going to have to use handwritten documents deal with it now because if you try and deal with it once you get to the archives it's it's not going to work um, I there is a professor in CIS who I won't name who said that he hadn't done any uh, paleography when he started his PhD some years ago and just opened the first document and cried. <laughs> um, so prepare. If you think you're going to have to do this, think about it. Practice. There are various, although courses on paleography almost don't exist, especially in the UK, um, there are textbooks and really practicing reading the documents makes such a huge difference to when you get into the archive and you're encountering something that you really need to know what it says. There is something called minims. Basically, that is a downward stroke of the pen. So if you look at something that you can't read, if you look at how many downward strokes it has, you can work, you should be able to work out, is this a sh or could this be something else? You can actually see what letters could be in that word by seeing how, how the pen has moved. And really, that's the, the essential point of reading handwritten documents is look at how the pen has moved on like a stroke-by-stroke stroke basis. Don't even look at letters, because you might not be able to work out what the letters are. Look at each individual pen stroke. And that, whilst horrifyingly slow to start off with, does get you somewhere. Repeated letters is another great thing. If you can find a word you can read, use that to help you read the other ones. OK, there's a tsa in tsar. We, will use, we know that that's one of the ways, actually, they can write letters five or six different ways in the same document. Um, we can use that to read other letters. Um, set phrases. Actually, Imperial Russia is great for this because most of the documents will have the Tsar's name and full title at the beginning, probably in the middle, and at the end of all documents. So you've got a whole section that you know what it's going to say before you even get to it. So you can work out letter combinations from those. 
Um, if in doubt, get some help. If you think that this is going to be important, supervisors, um, see if you can get recommendations from colleagues, and if it comes to it, um, you can actually take paleography courses in Russia. There are people who will actually, I do have friends who've done this, um, if you really need to read it, you can get someone who can read these documents and they will give you however long you want of intensive tuition or just some informal help. Also archivists, they're not just there to annoy you. <laughs> they can actually read these documents. And so asking people and getting on these people's good sides can really help. How am I doing for time? You're okay. Look, you've got a clock on your screen. I, I don't know when I'm supposed to finish. <laughs> okay, super, super. Okay, so those are my kind of general comments about how one can uh, deal with handwritten sources if this is necessary. But equally, even trained paleographers sometimes can't read the documents. There is a point where it's simply going to be a waste of your time to try and read that document. And giving up sometimes is the best option. <laughs> if you can't read it, I mean, how vital is this one sentence? You know, is this going to revolutionize your whole PhD? Well, probably not. And if you can't read it, is the next guy going to be able to read it anyway? So it's always a case of seeing how much really is this going to be useful to you. It's absolutely vital, you do need to push through it, but at the end of the day, don't kill yourself over one sentence. Move on, find something else, read something else. It may well be actually copied into another document anyway, especially if you're doing um, very early documents, they actually copy documents over and over and over. So, you know, prepare and practice but at the end of the day, if it really isn't happening, leave it. So, okay, um, I will actually leave it on that one for a moment. So, these were all the other things I came up against in the archives, and what I really found was, as partly because of this paleography issue, is that I ended up being able to do much, much less than I initially thought I could. 100,000 words sounds like a lot, when you initially get told that you know, you've got all of this space, but suddenly it's not very much. Huge, huge amount of my PhD was simply cut for lack of time to deal with all of those documents. Initially I was doing the 16th and 17th centuries. This has now been cut to the 17th century. This is now basically 1640 to sort of 1720. So it's been cut down quite severely in terms of time. Um, also in terms of types of documents, <laughs> although I am using some church sources and some literary sources, the absolute centre is now these archive documents and everything has been structured around these archive documents, partly because, damn it, it took me a long time to read them. I'm using them as much as possible. So one of the things to bear in mind is to the ability to focus whilst you're actually doing the research and be flexible in what you're looking for because you might actually find something more useful and also you may be forced or you may find it um, a useful idea to reevaluate exactly what you're looking at um, to do something more in depth to actually just deal with the sources you have. So life after the archive. Instead of being this very long and very broad subject, I've really focused down. Basically, I'm using these Skazki that I mentioned earlier, these um, discourses written by the medics as the structure of the whole PhD, dealing with different groups, um, different types of documents. We have ones on 
um, diseases, one's on med medicaments, sometimes they get involved in sorcery cases, which is fun, and using these as really the absolute centre of the project, and everything else has really been left as kind of extra detail, and it's been this cutting down which has been the main experience I've had of how the archives have impacted my study. Thank you.